Welcome to Sight Glass by Rubens Bruce. I'm Adam Robbings. And I'm Matt Lutton. So for today's episode, we're actually going back a little bit in time to uh, Seattle Beer Week 2019, back in May. We had a number of panel discussions uh, with fellow brewers in, in that beer week, and it was the first time we had done it. It was uh, hosted by Kendall Jones from the Washington Beer Blog, so a big, big shout out to him for helping run that and uh, make it go so smoothly. And we did, we did three panel discussions, and the first one uh, is the art of lagers. So on this panel, we had uh, four different brewers, uh, Harvey uh, Kenny from Chuckanut, uh, James McDermott from Rubens Brews, Josh Freem from Freem Family Brewers, and Aaron Blondin from Matches Brewing. Now, um, lagers, brewers tend to geek out a bit on lagers, I have to say, and uh, uh, we did get into a few discussions around decoction mashing. and so. For those of you who don't know the technical intricacies of brewing, and uh, we hope there's a number of you out there because we don't want to be overly focused on, on, on the technical brewing side, that, that is essentially a, a way that you mash a beer. So it's where you're, it's a German, traditional German style that is where it's often used in lagers, where you will essentially change the mash temperature for different reasons by taking some of the mash off, boiling it, heating it up, adding it back in. So being a Brit myself, our systems does not allow us to do decoction mashing. Ours are single infusion British mashing. But um, we just wanted to give you an overview on that before we get into the details, because there's a few discussions around that. And so with that, let's, uh, let's jump to the, uh, the art of lagers with uh, Kendall Jones. Okay, well, uh, like he just said, I'm Kendall, and uh, I'm, a, I'm just kind of a local beer hack writer. And... Uh, um, I know there's a lot of familiar faces in this room, which is cool. It's going to make it, hopefully it'll keep everybody from feeling too nervous. I'll, although looking over there at James, he doesn't look too nervous at all. No. <laughs> hopefully everybody's a couple beers in by the time we all start talking. So uh, we've got three different panels for you tonight. You probably know uh, lagers, the art of lagers, the art of hops, and the art of barrels, especially barrel-aged sours. So I'm going to start off with loggers, and I'm going to ask everybody on the panel to, number one, turn on their microphones, figure out how to work the microphone. There's either a switch on the side. There you go. So then I'm going to ask everybody to introduce themselves in terms of their name and which brewery they are here representing. Go ahead, Aaron. Uh, I am Aaron. Uh, I work at Matchless, and no, I do not still live in West Seattle. Moved to Olympia. I'm Harvey. I work at Chuckanut, and I'm also one of Will Kemper's favorite. <laughs> yes. Sorry, I think I think we're working. Yeah. Well, I'm clearly not the chosen one that Harvey is, but uh, I'm Josh Freem, uh, brewmaster and co-founder of Freem Family Brewers. Uh, I'm James McDermott. Uh, I'm with Rubens Brews, uh, head brewer there. Okay, so the first question I got is for Aaron. Um, going to preface it a little. I'm going to preface all these questions a little bit. I've noticed that Northwest craft brewed lagers have gotten a lot better in recent years, and I think most people agree with me. It's pretty obvious. Um, what changes have you seen in equipment, technology, and techniques that might account for this improvement 
in the quality of locally brewed lagers. I mean, I also want to preface it by saying this is a dude who won a silver medal for his Pilsner at the JBF a few years ago. So first of all, I think I basically begged you to ask that question, and then I thought, God, you only want me to talk for 10 minutes. Uh, I think we're steering into more lager production right now because uh, locally there's a lot of breweries that are under 1,000 barrels. And if you're under 1,000 barrels a year, you're allowed to take more risks. So in other words, like a five-barrel batch of uh, a Keller uh, might not be the risk of a, a brewery that does 80-barrel batches and fitting into rotation. Um, so thinking about that the whole way up here from Olympia, that was kind of one thing I thought that's really exploding the growth. It's also a lot of circular motion with drinkers as they tend to gravitate towards intense beers. And uh, I get super pissed, like Pat and I tend to put lactose and hazy adjunct stuff in beers, but I, I really want to make a lot of lager. Um, and I think that subtlety starts to come across for somebody that's been drinking long enough. Um, and that's what I enjoy making, what I hope people enjoy drinking. Um, so we're getting a lot of generational gaps right now, especially in like Seattle market, uh, brewers that have been brewing for 15 years, and then you get really ambitious young brewers that have been brewing for two years, and finally somebody gives them a shot, and they just go on making new popular beers, and then they're also really good at doing classical styles. So I was uh, fortunate enough to open a brewery that did uh, Czech beer on a Czech brew house at Chainline in Kirkland, and I really just steered into the ship. I hadn't done enough Czech beer probably before that, but that was what I decided that was gonna be like my area of focus, because I just wanted to do something that brew house was supposed to make. Um, tell, what, ooh, tell, us, tell us what makes Chainline's brew house different. Um, and also tell the story of where you got it. That was pretty cool. Uh, that came from a hotel in uh, Tokyo area, well, to simplify it. Um, it was a tinier town, but outside but of But it's that. a Czech manufactured system. Yeah, it was uh, manufactured in 1997. Uh, it's a two-vessel. Uh, it had an external like hot liquor tank. Um, and when I got... When I got there, the brew house already existed, so when I was piloting all the beer, when I actually saw the brew house, I started pivoting all of our recipes to match it. Um, but it was one of those things where you couldn't just stand around, nothing was automated, so your hot, your hot water would not circulate itself, so you had to figure out when you wanted to do that. Um, so I just decided right away we'd fire off the brew house and do a couple of easy wins, and I was pretty much the most uh, terrified of making lager on the brew house. So I think I spent like two years piloting in a garage uh, before we actually released our Pilsner. And uh, to benefit of us being small, because we only made uh, 10 hectoliter batches, uh, we had 90 hectoliters of fermentation space for Pilsner. So we were able to actually release Pilsner right out of the gate at uh, six months of aging basically of lagering time. And then I started freaking out when the beer was actually successful, it was selling, and then I was going, oh shit, I, I'm supposed to be brewing one every week, so when that tank empties, I can condition a new batch. So that pivoted that brewery, and we had to turn all of our fermentation and uh, conditioning capacity into like lager specific, and then we bought two ale tanks. 
So, and that was out of 10 tanks. So it's almost, it's almost kind of probably opposite of what most people would do, is they would just say, they would have, we have one tank for loggering and use everything else for ales, so you guys kind of ended up going the different direction? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and I, you can make a great lager single infusion. Um, quality ingredients would have a lot to do with it for me personally. Uh, then uh, whatever style you're trying to do, um, processes are like really romantic to me. So if you can do a decoction or uh, we do a lot of step mashing, um, I think it makes the beer different. Um, although I'll be the first to admit I just at like 5 a.m. a couple days ago, did a acid rest on a beer that uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Eric, I think the acid rest helped a little, but it was more <laughs> the romance of doing it. Uh, it kept me in a sweet spot, but yeah, that added three hours to my brew day. I was just kind of dead set on trying to do it and convinced it was going to do something, so. But have you noticed, um, just talking to other brewers, and there's obviously a lot of brewers in the room right now, but have you noticed anything that people are doing now that, because I'm telling you, like 10 years ago, other than checking that, when you, people were, you'd go into a brewery and it's like, yeah, we have a, a lager, whether, whatever they called it. Um, it was pretty much a token effort. It was like, well, we brew this beer for the people who walk into the brewery and say, I normally drink Bud Light. It's like, we'll try this, you know. And nobody was, pretty much nobody was doing it well. Um, things changed, of course, when Chuckanut raised the bar. But uh, I just wonder, have you guys noticed, and, it, and obviously as we're doing this discussion, if any of you guys want to chime in on somebody else's question, don't be afraid to stop over the top of somebody, because that's what this is about. You guys are the experts, and you know, show each other up. Prove that you know more than Aaron. You know? <laughs> yes, that's, that's the whole point. That's the whole point. So what have you guys noticed that, other, that people are doing? Why, why are loggers better now? What, what, what happened? I think it would be fair to say that, uh, generally speaking, um, in the U.S., but I think in Washington as well, that beer is improved overall. And I think loggers have come with that. Um, I think we all kind of have, have raised the bar in the last 10 years um, in terms of like diversity of styles that are being kind of being mastered, but certainly loggers have kind of come with that. Um, but when it comes to kind of token efforts, I think that certainly ingredients are a huge part, but I think, you know, understanding pitching rates and understanding, um, you know, your oxygen rates and, and, and why you're doing it and having that level of care, um, they can't be token efforts. So I think, I think that's part of it is like if, uh, as we're trying to, you know, master IPAs of whatever style or, you know, whatever it is we're trying to do, um, I think that's all kind of gone up with it. But I think you're right. I think, I think that there was kind of a big push. I think Chuck and I did change the scene in the, in the Seattle and certainly like kind of the Western Washington area um, for a lot of us. I mean, I, I definitely was, was blown away, you know, when, when Chuck and I hit the scene. Um, and it definitely raised the bar. Yeah, it was like suddenly in Washington, if you were going to make a Pilsner or even a Hellas Lager or something, it was like you couldn't just you couldn't just phone it in. <laughs> there, was, there was somebody up in Bellingham that was making a good one, so you, either you shouldn't even try, or you know you you better give it your best effort. Um, moving on, next question I have is for Harvey, and I'm gonna I'm gonna throw a little bit of a curveball here. Um, I don't know if you bothered to read the question that I sent up to you. Uh, through Mari and all that, but you have brewed around the world. You've been a brewer in foreign, far off foreign lands, crazy places like Australia and Mexico and Turkey and even in wacky old Louisiana. Um, what can you tell us about different approaches to lager and different tastes? What's, what's a different appeal of lagers? Is there a difference between the kind of lagers that you've made 
in different parts of the world or different parts of the country. Well, it's interesting that you mention uh, what could be different about lager in different parts of the world. I could tell you right away, in Turkey, we weren't brewing beer. That the local regulations were such that we were brewing ale and we were brewing lager. So we weren't actually producing beer, which was its own interesting little wrinkle. We, we all know something called international lager. And we think of it as a relatively ubiquitous style. Maybe it's a low IBU, 3470 driven, perhaps a rough local malt that is somehow tamed into submission. It's something that of a privilege when you import Weyermann perhaps into a different locale and you're able to produce a lager that at least on the malt end stands out a little bit. Uh, you're given the freedom to perhaps express yourself with the hop slightly. Will took me to Turkey and I thought I was going to live my whole life in California and at the time craft lager wasn't a big thing. So far on this panel, I've heard the word IPA a lot. And one thing that I've noticed about IPA and lager in the craft industry in America, which I've been here for seven years now, forgive me, I'm a little bit of a newbie, is that there is some internet content where you can't drink 7% IPA all day. <laughs> Us brewers are kind of your sentinel species in this regard. And so the brewers, with their love, their love of the craft, their love of beer, have perhaps generated some of this, to use the word, backswing into lager. At a lager symposium in Bellingham, at a place called Wander, the brewer there said, you know, my brewers just walk up to a tank, slap it around, tell it who's boss, and it's IPA. Now, the brewer <laughs> petting the tank, saying nice things to it, you know, applying every little bit of finesse he can to that tank, whether it's horizontal or cylindroconical, somehow you know that lager's in that tank. It's perhaps a bit brewer-driven, the whole love of lager. And if our love were to spill into the, I don't know, Joe six-pack or, you know, Crafty McCrafterson's <laughs> desire for a decent lager, then so be it. That's my two cents. So I've, I've, I, I hadn't, I don't know if this analogy makes any sense, but I've in the past thought that like uh, making a good IPA is like making a good batch of chili, and making a, a good lager is like making a souffle. Um, but I've talked to brewers about that and they go, no, you're totally wrong because of this or that or whatever. So it's just a silly analogy, but what you just said kind of backs up 
my particular take on it. And so um, it sounds like part of it is, like you say, it's brewer-driven, so it's a challenge to do it well. Um, there's a lot more room for error in other styles. There's not much room for error in a well-crafted Pilsner. So, I mean, most brewers I know love a challenge, and they're, they're constantly trying to do something to prove to themselves that this is a really good beer. So uh, I think that you bring up a good point, that it's a brewer, the, the idea that it's brewer-driven is a really good point. And, you know, with the notion of lager perhaps throwing up less flavor itself as a yeast if treated properly, with it not being IPA and as we've all heard a million times before, hops to hide behind. What I tell people is that brewing a good lager is a lot like going naked to a party. Imperfections will be noted. <laughs> and this is a recurring, <laughs> this is a recurrent nightmare for a lot of people. <laughs> when you, okay, Harvey, this is still directed at you, Harvey. Um, you helped put together a lot of breweries around the world. Australia and Louisiana in particular is what I was told. Um, in terms of the brewing process, what have you noticed being different at Chuck and I? What's Chuck and I? I mean, I know you don't want to give away the secrets of what's happening behind the magic curtain, but compared to other breweries you've been at, what is Chuck and I doing that's making them perhaps better than a lot of other breweries producing lagers? Right away, in terms of process, what I've noticed coming to Chuckanut is the attention to temperature control and yeast handling. Uh, I've been here in Ballard District for a few hours now, and I've sought out a few loggers. And I could, there were a few flavor components and a few beers that I had that spoke towards yeast mishandling. Uh, I couldn't speak for temperature control or anything. At Chuck and I, I am, I, I'm taken aback. The, there is a, at least within the brewer's sphere, if that's a word, there, <laughs> yes. So there's a perception that we're all neurotic at Chuckanut and we're reworking everything and overworking everything and paying attention to things and I'm cool with that. I, I think that in particular those two things are something that I've noted and by the way, those weren't here and I'm really relieved for that. Because <laughs> it would be a lot harder to say these words if I were here and I just, you know, discovered those same uh, maybe imperfections of the word. But it's really comforting to come back to the United States, particularly to come back to Chuckanut and see the attention to yeast handling. Uh, the idea that every fermentation is unique, it's not necessarily cap the tank at day seven you know, drop this, crash that, day nine, et cetera, et cetera. The attention to each fermentation is its own animal, because that's what yeast is, is really refreshing uh, to think that 
we're acting on the yeast cues and what the yeast is telling us is, well, it's a relief. We don't have to find it within ourselves. The yeast tells us what to do. And so that would be the first thing I would notice about the processes at Chuckanut that are special. Other things that are special, well, I would hardly call 3470 environment special. Everyone knows that 3470 environment are great. It's, it's no big secret. It's, it's one of those universally accepted logger things. I mean, at least in my limited experience. Right. Um, this all kind of leads into the question I've got for Josh, which is, uh, you know, you were, you were, uh, were you, you were the first brewer with Will up at Chuckanut, right? I was, yeah. Yeah. And when all those, when, when they, sh when Chuckanut, you and Will and Chuckanut shocked the world at that first GABF appearance, you guys won as many medals as anybody in the damn country your first time out the gate, including brew pub of the year, small brew pub of the year or whatever that, that award was because you guys did so well. Um, but obviously, some of what, what Harvey was just talking about, you took away from there with you, and you eventually, when you opened Freem, uh, what, it, now, you know, you're not making just lagers at Freem. You do make an outstanding Pilsner, and you make outstanding beers across the board, but that's the thing is, you make everything from big, crazy, barrel-aged beers to funky sours to traditional European-style Pilsner, um, great IPAs. You're killing it across the board. How does the, the kind of detail that Harvey was talking about, that kind of level of detail that we, everybody here who knows Will Kemper and has been around him, listened to him talk, he's so into that, that level of detail that a lot of brewers miss. How, did, how, how much of an influence did that kind of detail have on the quality of the beers that you produce now, that wide range of beers that you produce now? Yeah, for sure. I think when, I mean, I've brewed at quite a few different breweries and I've been a brewer for a long time. Uh, I think my attraction to working with Will originally was uh, his intent and approach. Uh, you know, how you look at beer as a brewer, as a brewmaster, whoever's in charge of the beer, the beauty of that is you get to choose, but it's all going to start from your intent and approach. If you're very casual, uh, you'll make casual beer. Uh, uh, if you're very intentional, very critical, very analytical, you will make very intentional, analytical, and very critical, uh, and very precise beer. Uh, that was, I was very driven to work with Will because at that time, you know, we came off an era, this is like mid, I guess, aughts or whatever people call it now, where most, a lot of breweries were driven off of uh, very, you know, a very capitalistic approach of business and opportunity, but Will's brewery was a brewer-driven brewery and everything was looked at. Just a lot of stuff that Harvey was talking about, you know, the, the, <clears throat> where did the hops come from? Where did the malt come from? The level of quality, level of detail, each individual thing, how it goes through on the hot side in the brew house, and then how that transfers and connects to yeast and fermentation and time and conditioning, you know, those are all connected. And then how you finish your beer and with carbonation and then packaging, uh, you know, that was my first opportunity as a brewer to work with somebody that had spent their whole career waiting for the opportunity to do it their way and cared for all those details. And I was incredibly attracted to that. And that's why Will and I worked so well together out of the gate. 
uh, and we were able to do some really fun, very cool things and still really uh, enjoying being colleagues together. So that's always been my passion and approach. Um, and then now I'm very, very, very fortunate to have a wonderful team that I work with and that I lead, I get to coach, and that's our approach every day. When we built Frame, I, we knew we were going to do a lot of things, but at the heart of it, I wanted to build a brewery that could make uh, an amazing pilsner, amazing lager. And so that was, we, every single part of the beer, that, or excuse, ever the brewery that was installed or put into place had to be able to make world-class pilsner. And so our intent, our approach has always been for all of our beers to be really finite, really particular, and to have a goal for the beer. What do we want it to be? And <clears throat> all those things touch it. Uh, we always say that Freem Pilsner is the heart of the brewery. It influences everything else. It gives us life. Uh, not only does it allow us to do all the things that we do, and probably pound for pound, gallon for gallon, it's what we drink the most, but uh, it allows all the rest of the projects to happen. It allows uh, the, the ability for the equipment that's brewing, whether it's like a Flanders or an inspired beer or a Lamp inspired beer or hazy New England, West Coast, whatever we're calling them these days, uh, IPA, that, that same intent approach is going to that, uh, into that beer. Uh, you know, just because uh, a hazy IPA was originally made really turbid and yeast solids and uh, like hop solids, and it doesn't mean that it has to keep going that way. Uh, you can, we can take a more of a locker approach or a Hefeweizen approach in order to look at it. Uh, oh, look at these wonderful, beer magical angels. people. You read my mind. Please be kind to the staff. Give it up for Rubens and their crew. This is yeah, awesome. No Thank you. Thank you. So, and, and I think, you know, the, the opportunities on the table of what you want a logger to be, uh, and then how that translates to, to the rest of your brewery. Uh, and it's also the beauty of beer, right? Like we can make it whatever we want it to be. I think that's why a lot of us got into it. There's a little bit of rebellious nature to all of us. And, and I think it's okay that everyone has a little bit different approach. Otherwise, beer would be boring. But I think to really know what your approach is and why you want to do it is very important. And everything else will fall into place after that. The statement that you made about how your, your Pilsner is what enables you to be able to do all the, the crazy stuff that you do, um, that is so bizarre to hear. Think about it, just a few years ago, it was like the strength of our IPA is what allows us to be able to, to screw around and do something like a Pilsner. It's, like, it's, a, it's how things have changed in recent years, and my, I, for one, as a, as not as a brewer, but as a consumer, as a beer lover, it makes me so happy that I can go out and get killer pilsners and killer, all, you know, all styles of lagers now. It's, it's really a great change. But it, it's such a, what you said is just so, it struck me that, you know, the pilsner is what allows us to be able to put stuff in barrels and age it on fruit. And, you know, it's like, that's crazy. What, what happened? <laughs> okay, this, I'm going to move on now uh, to James. And uh, we'll, we'll, Categorize this one as the uh, the old Godfather thing of you know keep your friends close and keep your enemies closer. Um, 
You guys did a project with Rainier a few years ago, that R&R project, and uh, not that that had anything to do with keeping your enemies closer, they're certainly not an enemy, but you didn't work directly with them. Uh, it wasn't as, it was more of like a tangential branding kind of thing, but I bring this up because I'm just wondering, what can those big mega breweries that we're all programmed to hate, what can we learn from them? What about their processes? What about, what do you think about what they're doing at Anheuser-Busch that can help you scale up the production of Rubens Pilsner, for example? You know, I think um, it kind of goes both ways for sure. It's kind of what can we learn from them? What can they learn from us? Um, you know, there, there were definitely limitations in terms of that kind of partnership. And, um, you know, certainly um, that, that brand is, is truly a brand. It's being managed as a brand. It, it gets brewed in multiple places. Um, and that in particular was brewed at, at, um, at Red Hook at the time. And it was done kind of through like a decoction style. So, you know, th there's certainly, you know, when it comes to like large breweries that have kind of this built in, they've been producing lager for hundreds of, you know, a hundred plus years or, or so in the U.S. Um, you have maybe, they've, you know, they've, they've essentially built the science of brewing. Um, when it comes to this, the science of brewing in the U.S. or the world, um, that's, you know, where a lot of kind of lager brewing kind of, um, kind of, convalesces with like with science in general and that's where a lot of science is, is in in the brewing industry is focused on lager breweries so there's always something to learn from that when it comes from um, you know process or technology um, you know usually when you're talking or, or learning about brewing it's coming from um, usually European styles and it's focused on making 12 plato lager and it doesn't necessarily translate to when you want to make beers in the US um, but you know specifically with that kind of partnership it was um, kind of we did the pilot batch here, and it was, you know, okay, well, we're doing single infusion mash, we're using Galaxy, and, uh, you know, then, then trying to, to port that up to a much larger batch um, where they're doing multiple decoctions and they can't quite find a source for Galaxy and how are we going to do that. Um, you know, it kind of speaks to that difference where we have that ability to be small and source things on a, on a different level um, and have that level of flexibility. Um, but, you know, in terms of, of um, you know, what can we gain, I think, uh, re regarding that science aspect, it, it, science aspect, it kind of, it speaks back to that, um, to the, uh, you know, when it comes to, like, yeast, yeast handling or, or, or fermentation in general, I think those are really the, some of the most important things when it comes to producing beer in general, consistent beer in general, are looking at those things, understanding those things, and really looking for constant improvement. And I think that, um, those are definitely the hallmarks of large breweries um, and something that they've, you know, honed to, to a, you know, profitable science in the last hundred years. And that's something that we can definitely take away. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's, they lack that flexibility that we have to do whatever we want and change direction or, you know, use a different malt. And, uh, uh, you know, if you don't have a contract for something and, and, and you just want to buy something on spot, but you're just doing one batch, we can do it. And, that's, that's really special, and I think that's what makes, you know, when we talk about, um, you know, IPA and lager and, like, and, and what's growing and what's not growing, it, it's, it's so great that we can just do whatever and that we can have all of this, um, you know, diversity of beer and focus on all of it being good because, I mean, that's really all that matters in that regard. Um, but, you know, I think, I think that's kind of the biggest takeaway is, is kind of um, more of the, the what's that traditional approach, I suppose. Right. So uh, you mentioned a word that I love, 
uh, decoction. Yeah. <laughs> Got, I think I might have a couple of people up here that are excited. Let's talk about things like mash regiment, uh, decoction, step. Uh, what kind of differences can you make in your lager? Give us some ideas about what you might do to add some finesse, to add some interesting things to your lagers using those kinds of techniques. And it's not directed to anybody, it's directed to all of you. So whoever wants to chime in, I know Josh has probably got something to say about this. Yeah, I can hop in. Uh, so the beauty of lager brewing, uh, just whatever style of beer you're working with, is what, what, what do you have to work with? You know, if you're working with whatever realm, IPA, you're pretty focused on hops, maybe a little bit of malt, uh, but in general, that's your focus. I think with lager beers, uh, big focus is malt. Uh, and then obviously with the lager fermentation itself, the having that to be able to back it up. But malt is your thing you're playing with uh, quite a bit. And so first and foremost, you gotta have good malt. I mean, if you, whatever you're gonna bring forward to the brew house, it's gonna taste like what it came from. So if it was wonderful uh, and made really nice, probably give off nice things. If it was cheap and old and uh, crusty, it's going to taste cheap, old, and crusty. Uh, and then on the brew house side is the opportunity to, to really lift it. So there's a lot of different things you could do on the, on the brew house or on the hot side to be able to accentuate it. Um, I'm a firm believer that you can, you can make great lager beer, single infusion, or step, or however. Uh, Freem Pilsner uh, has won a silver at GABF as a single infusion uh, lager, and has also won a silver at GABF as a very complex step mash. Uh, so take it for whatever that's worth. Uh, but then it's whatever you want to get out of the beer. Uh, I think the more that you do, the more complex it's going to be. Uh, decoction is going to add another element to it, different flavors different level of uh, free radicals and O2 and other things are gonna affect it for pro or con, depending on what it is. But then, uh, you know, step is gonna really bring out a lot of really beautiful flavors. But there's also, it's not always appropriate. Uh, we brew a Mexican lager or Mexican inspired lager, which we use uh, corn in, and we don't use the corn to dumb the flavor down. We use it as an adjunct to add additional labor, uh, level of fl uh, flavor to it. But what's super interesting about that beer in particular, when we went to start brewing those beers, it's what we do with a lot of, uh, or similar to our approach, is it will uh, deconstruct or uh, go backwards through the engineering process of a beer. So we evaluated Mexican lagers, and what, like, why, why do these drink so light? All of us are like, ah, oh, they're finished at like less than one degree Play-Doh. They have to, it has to be like super dry. And, Yada, yada, yada. And then we ran through the lab, and it was like, oh my gosh, these things finish at 2.5 degrees Play-Doh, and the pH is super low. And so it's the balance of the pH and the malt, and so we're like, well, we're not going to get 2.5 through a step. So we're going to actually mash pretty warm and do a single infusion mash. And so I think there's a lot of, like, uh, lore, and, like, you have to do this or you have to do that with lagers, but it, once again, it's about 10 approach, and so what, what do you want to get at the end of the day, and then you can, you can factor into the brew house. Um, anybody else? Yes. Any, yeah, talk to us about <laughs> more about mash regiment. Um, yeah, yeah, like, talking about decoctions is something I've been able to explore. Well, first of all, I mean, how... Tell me, tell me like I have no, no clue. Yeah, I'll, what, what system, I mean, is, does everybody, 
have a system out there that they can do decoction on? Uh, no. Um, so if you were to... Like, Would you say that most do not? Uh, probably, in Seattle especially. Uh, you need a brew house that's probably more than two vessels, and most of the time, like, so if we go back, I guess, 10 years when I mashed in, it was a single infusion mash uh, at two beers and soda, and uh, you just wanted to make sure shit, you hit your temperature, um, but there wasn't anything you could do to change or step your temperature besides, like, using less water initially and stepping it with hot water. Um, so it didn't make complex lager. Like for, it made passable lager and you can make great beer that way, uh, just like Josh said. But uh, if you recall, because I know you knew me personally, is uh, we started doing uh, Church Key, which was that you might remember, um, it failed terribly. It was owned by Adrian Grenier and I was one of his sole employees and all I did was make Pilsner. And it sort of beat the shit out of what I like in Pilsner though. So it was uh, one malt, one hop. Um, to me, not the wrong malt, just not my preferred malt. And it was the right hop, so we used check sauce. Uh, then we would just mash it at you know 149 for an hour, run it off. And I got really good at consistently brewing it because that was a 15-barrel brew house, and I had to do 90 barrels of lager for their canning runs that we would do uh, once a month. Let's call it so. Into steel cans. Into steel with, cans. With old school uh, rip top church key that you had to get a church key to. Yes. Um, which which the, made which made my seventy something year old grand grandmother aged mother at the time say, "What?" And I said, "They you have to use an old church key to open this can of beer." And she said, "Why? Don't they realize that we hated those things?" <laughs> but anyway, the the, the kid yeah. the kids all thought, the hipsters all thought it was cool at the time and. Apparently not that cool. Anyway, continue. I don't. I don't know if there was a, there was an NDA or anything about it, but uh, Ball Manufacturing made that steel can. They were trying to redo something that was historic. Uh, the can could not handle uh, inert gas laws, so it couldn't handle temperature change, and uh, the can started to look like footballs. So that was our first recall. Um, but again, this is like a celebrity, so this made this beer just like fly out of the Hollywood brewery. money. Hollywood money. Um, the weirdest celebrity I've probably ever met. And I haven't met very many, so that doesn't say much. Uh, so we recalled the can, and then the can liner, that drove that business like into the ground. The, the amount of quality control problems that they had on a beer, like we've all said, that shows every flaw in the world to being a beer that was also single infused with like four hop additions as you would make Pilsner if you're Czech. You know, it just, it had some of the right things going for it and it went completely the wrong direction. So fast forward now, you know, it's like nine years later and I joined Pat and Arbor House, uh, a lot of people might not know we're a four vessel, 30 barrel, and we do have a mash mixer and we decoct the shit out of everything. So potatoes, rice, corn, like we have tried a lot of stupid stuff in the brew house and added many hours to my day, but it, it, at the end of the day, that extra like five to 10% of flavor, which I feel like takes it from a you know, passable beer to like trying to do some world-class esoteric nuancey shit is like why I go in and brew every day. So. 
So yeah, I'll, you know, you can boil something for 10 minutes and then, you know, as Pat calls it, we can pontificate over the pint and see if we notice a difference with that decoction at 10 minutes versus 20. It's just something that we choose to do process-wise and it's something that I really like resonate with. I don't want to let like historical techniques die in lieu of like making a quick buck and making beer faster. Somebody, somebody once said that uh, Pilsner is poised to become the new IPA. To which I replied, as long as we don't end up having hazy Pilsner. <laughs> just, just, okay. Just wanted to throw that in. <laughs> Please, no hazy Pilsners. Filter your Pilsner. So, but given that, uh, what do you guys think... I mean, if you can step away from yourselves as brewers for a second and think about it in terms of from the consumer side, do you really see this as a major shift in things? I mean, let's face it, there's 7,000 breweries in America, and, they, and they, there aren't 7,000 breweries in the world, be, in America, because everybody fell in love with, with uh, Hellas Lager or with Maybach. They fell in love with IPA, and that's what drove the industry to where it's at today, largely over the last 10 years. But do you see beers like Pilsner's having a big part of the future? And this is, we're getting toward the end of our time, so just kind of a short answer from each of you would be great. Where do you, where do you see the future of Pilsner and light lagers in the future of craft beer? I just recently read an article in The Economist, which doesn't make me an authority, It mentioned the fact that there are many of us craft aficionados who would prefer to buy craft, but we still buy macro lager. What if we could buy craft Pilsner that was just as satisfying, just as clean, just as easy to drink after you've mowed the lawn? Uh, we all know that Getting back to my mention of you can't drink 7% IPA all day. You mow the lawn uh, and you're not I, drinking I beg, IPA. I beg to differ. But go ahead. <laughs> it's hard to mow the lawn and, you know, sweat a gallon and drink a gallon of IPA. That's why I only have four toes on my right foot, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So there, there is this feeling that we do look for a nice drinkable lager that doesn't necessarily have the bracing notes of the esters of an ale or the, not necessarily, well, okay, I'm from Chuckanut, excessive hop character of an IPA. <laughs> uh, we like something smooth, easy, maybe even has a little bit of a watery note in the middle. Oh my gosh, I said that. <laughs> I think that's okay. Uh, I think I'd go back to the beginning of craft beer and like why it came, why are we here, why did it come to be, and it was a rebellion, you know, it was industrial lager uh, versus like a really new flavor of beer that was modeled off of European beers of super heavy caramel malt and new bitter and extreme flavors, and there was a whole group of us that said, hey, we like flavor, uh, and we want something more, and that was the difference that like that made us against them. But meanwhile, there's been this lack of a battle over in Europe. Uh, if you've been to Munich, uh, 
people still there every year for the last hundreds of years drink liters and liters and liters of Hellas. Uh, why? And why is there not like a rebellion there? Because Hellas is super flavorful. It's really delicious. It's lovely. It's wonderful. It's nuanced. You have sulfur. You have hops. You have dynamic malt. And so I think, you know, as a culture, we needed a time to separate the difference uh, of, of, of flavors. And I think over time, we've become better brewers and we refine flavors and we've then built up customers and those customers want more harmonious flavors and balance. And now we're back to the other side of even though a beautiful like Pilsner or Hellas or different types of lagers looks really close from afar from an industrial lager, it tastes really, really different, but now we have the palates to appreciate it. And I think that's gonna drive us forward, but <laughs> I, as much as I agree with Harvey, uh, I also would say that on the other side though, I think it's really nice to not let go of really, really hot forward beers and complex barrel aged beers and other nuances that it's really nice to mix up the flavor. I mean, if you think of the favorite dinner you've been to in the last couple of years, you probably tried like 10 or 20 different things uh, and you got to mix up the palate. I'll, I'll drink lager all day, all night. And, but when I'm at my house with my family, I drink a couple of lagers, drink something else complex, move the palate around. And so I think what's critical moving forward, though, is that people brew great lager. There's not a lot of room for mediocre lager because that will screw the whole thing up. And so, don't screw up lager. Uh, you know, I think that question didn't necessarily focus to say, you know, is it is it craft-focused lager or just lager in general? Obviously, lager is what is majority brewed in the world by a massive percentage. Uh, and I think when you think about in the U.S. and the craft beer scene in terms of lager taking a taking a, a larger role, I think that's appropriate. I think that makes sense. I think it's it's essentially the evolution of just folks drinking better beer in general and having better lager than. Than, um, than certainly than maybe um, certain mass-produced lagers, but um, you know that revolution happened in a sense, right? And and it's and it's that's the wonder bread of of the beer world. Um, and yeah, there's better ways to make bread, and there's better ways to make flavorful things that you enjoy. And that doesn't mean that you can't enjoy all of it, right? That that you can't have um, this huge diversity of, of of beers and be into that. Um, and one of those you know might be larger than another, but I don't see it as a competition of IPA. And Pilsner, I think the point of all of this is that there's diversity. I think that's what drives this industry. I think that's what's so interesting about craft beer is that you can have such a wide array of, um, you know, of, of beers uh, that can be so massively different in color or pH or you know, just flavor when it comes to hops or malt. Um, that's what makes it interesting. That's what's different than you know, a lot of, you know, say, spirits or wine or whatever, is that the amount of ingredients, the amount of um, you know, levers that you can pull to make interesting things and different flavors. That's why beer is so unique. That's why it's such a cool thing. Um, and I, I think, I hope it grows, and I hope it just takes market share from, you know, lager. But, like, <laughs> you know, that, I, think, I think that's what it should be more than anything else. And, and, I, and I hope IPA stays exactly where it is or grows. But I think it's viewing it as this big picture of, of I, I just hope it's intentional. All right, guys, we've got to wrap it up. Um, that's where we're at. I just to say what is interesting for me with, with lagers is, is most brewers are now drinking lagers. And if you go back 
seven, ten, ten years ago, well, actually ten, more than ten, ten to fifteen years ago, uh, before IPAs became like one of the top three uh, craft um, categories, uh, brewers were drinking IPAs before they had really made it to mainstream. And right now, we, I think we might be seeing, there are green shoots to say that we are starting to see the same thing happening on the lager side. Brewers are going back to lagers. Um, I say going back to lagers because lager is still, uh, throughout the world, the most commonly brewed uh, style uh, or sub subsection of styles, you know, group of styles. Um, but it's, uh, from, from the other thing I think that's really helping lagers in their evolution in craft in craft uh is uh, capacity so lagers take you know at least two times the length of time in a tank as it does an ipa so you could in theory with the same brewery uh make twice as much ipa as you could lager and ipas are far more popular even today than lagers in craft so there's always been a capacity issue in that we haven't had enough capacity in craft to be able to brew lagers. But as we are um, moving uh, in the current um, current state of the industry and where is the growth rate has dropped quite a lot, you're seeing um, a lot of uh, reports to say that we have a decent amount of capacity in, in craft brewing, i.e. craft breweries aren't operating at full capacity. So then there's a supply side benefit or drive in that brewers are wanting to drink lagers, and now they can because they're not at at as much of a, a rush to have to pump out the next IPA as quickly as they can. So it's a nice synergy of the two two things. I think another aspect of brewers loving lagers and working with lagers is that they're a much more hands-on uh, process. Uh, as Harvey said during the discussion, that if you see a brewer in their brewery pound in a tank, it might be IPA, but if they're lovingly petting the the tank it might be a lager um, i think brewers and certain kinds of beer nerds uh, love that aspect that it's a much more technical process uh, to a large degree uh, fermentation temperature is is more important and there is maybe a little bit more focus on 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 the beer within the tank uh, you know a bit more hand holding of that beer but if you're going to make a really good ipa like i mean a really good ipa that needs a lot of a lot of caressing the tank as well you know um you that gone are the days of bittering the living daylights out of an ipa and calling it good you know that you've got to get enough bitterness in there to wrap up the sip but not to be astringent or linger on your palate you know how do you get to that point i mean for for us we're changing the bittering hops that we're using uh, over time to make a softer more maybe restrained bitterness that um in the past you know 10 years ago brewers were using very piercing ibu levels with piercing hops to like to like really lay a sledgehammer down at you but now i think some of the best ipas in the country are, show that level of finesse in a different way you know yeah if i'm hearing you right it's you're seeing a comparison with what a modern ipa can be in terms of nuance and technical know-how and finesse uh, that maybe we've learned from loggers. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a natural evolution of, in this case, IPA brewing. But with lagers, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot more of a naked style in that um, ester profile is more obvious 
in, in it. So like if you've got any ester profiles within that fermentation, it's going to be pretty pretty obvious you can't cover it up with a hot profile or try and blend it in with a hot profile. Um, the bittering hops, because you've got such a lower hop load, your bittering hop is going to lead some flavor through to the final the final beer, because uh, again, it's it's not as heavily layered. So, but if you use those principles in building an IPA and care about it in the same way, I think you get a far better IPA as well. But um, you can get away with not maybe maybe it's a little easier to get away with not being that refined, you know, in some in some beers. So that uh, leads into the final segment of the episode where we take uh, our listener question. And uh, pose it to the brewmaster. <laughs> so um, I chose this one because it really dovetails well with the conversation of loggers. And uh, ha- as you and I have been talking here, so A. Chumbly11 uh, <laughs> wrote on Instagram and asked, do you primarily use one malting company or multiple? And I would add to that, how do you choose which malts you want to use in beer? So in a, in a prior episode, we talked with a coffee roaster, um, Kuma, and about the terroir of, of certain uh, beans, right? His, his raw ingredient, if you like. Uh, malt has a definite terroir as well, as well as uh, it can be processed in a certain way. So uh, I believe in uh, being unconstrained on ingredient selection. And by that, uh, I, I don't want to just use a certain maltster. So uh, that creates some logistical nightmares, right? But um, giving a, 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 some examples, uh, caramel malt from the US is a lot cleaner and sweeter than maybe a British equivalent caramel malt, which is a lot more sticky and maybe richer. Both work in their in their respective beers. But when I go back to the UK and I have American IPAs um, uh, in a, in a quotation marks. Um, they're really sticky and and like almost cloying because they've used British caramel malt in an American style. So it's um, to me, it's like a vast difference. When you're going into lagers in particular, so our Pilsner, um, which is a Czech style Pilsner, so it uses Czech hops, is a little bit more on the full. It's got a little bit more body than a German Pilsner, which tends to be drier. Um, but in that beer, we use a one of my favorite German. Pilsner malts, uh, which is really intense breadiness, but it's like almost too much, and it could overpower because we talked about the beer being more naked, right? That base malt could overpower the hop profile and like envelop it, so it wouldn't open up enough. So um, what we do there is we cut it with a more neutral Pilsner malt from North America to um, maybe rain it back a little bit, but still let it shine. So uh, the there we're talking about diff two, the same malt, Pilsner malt, just from two different maltsters with different terroirs to give you a different end result. You know, that would be fundamentally different than using either or one of, one of the, those two. Phew, I was getting worried you're going to blindside me on something <laughs> there for a bit. But started off with something, yeah. a, a softball, something that you think about every single day. Start, yeah, start me off easy and then build up from there. <laughs> so, yeah, as we wrap up our lager episode if you enjoyed this podcast please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform such as apple Podcasts, spotify or google podcast i also want to say thank you to eric johnson and quiet coyote studios for the music to the show and production so until next time cheers cheers